Thank you, Tyler and the praise team for leading us in worship this morning. If you are here with a Bible, then you can open it up to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the back that are available for you to pick up if you would like. Matthew chapter 13, this is where we've been for the last several weeks as we've been wrestling with these parables that Jesus has been teaching. In the book of Matthew, the parable first shows up in Matthew chapter 13. And so we've been wrestling with these interesting ways that Jesus is trying to teach us more about the kingdom of God. I need to jump in quickly to the text this morning. Uh, because we're going to jump around a little bit. The, the uh, lectionary text has us visiting several different parables today. And so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 13 with verses 31 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. I'm glad I'm not the person that's making that much bread, though. 60 pounds of flour, could you imagine? So these two parables are really kind of similar to each other in lots of ways. Both speak to the reality of the kingdom of God at work in this world right now. And both seem to suggest or point to something that is small or tiny. We have a tiny seed, we have a small amount of yeast. And then both end in this kind of surprising size. We have the the tree that's described for the mustard seed. We have the amount of bread that's made in the, the parable of the yeast. It's interesting to me that these two are paired together and that they represent two different genders for us. I don't think we should miss this little subtle point. It's not as if all of the parables and all the ways that Jesus is trying to teach his people and the people around him always focus on the male gender. That would be natural, after all, because the ancient world and the culture that Jesus was growing up in was very patriarchal. That's just the truth. And so it would be very ordinary, it'd be very common for Jesus in, in pulling out the parables and having characters that he's building these parables around to have them dominated by the male gender. But in this case, we find that they are joined together, two pairs that are similar in what they're saying to us, and there's a male and there's a female character. I think we shouldn't overlook that. But that's not the actual purpose of these parables. You know that, and I know that. I just think it's an observation that needs to be made. But the mustard seed. You know this is probably being one of the tiniest seeds in the world. I don't know if it's the tiniest. I'm sure that there are people that have measured and found that there are tinier seeds. But proverbially, it was known in the ancient world. In other words, we can look at ancient documents and all over the place, rabbis, other, other uh, religious figures would often draw on the idea of the mustard seed as being the smallest known seed. 
and they would do their teachings. So Jesus is following along with this common practice of if you want to do something that is referred to something that is small, pull out the mustard seed because it's considered the smallest seed. He says that it blooms to become a tree. Now, friends, this is almost certainly a joke because it doesn't become a tree. There is a kind of mustard seed in uh, the Middle East that does grow to between 9 and 15 feet tall, which is a pretty substantial size bush, isn't it? And if you think that mustard is a, is a plant, that's a pretty significant plant. But it's not a tree. A nine-foot tree, that's pretty small. What is Jesus doing here? It seems as if he's telling something that is meant to be humorous, a joke, or he's seeing something so in, in such an exaggerated, outlandish way that he's trying to engage his audience again to think, like, what in the world do you mean, a tree? It's not a tree. And the reality is Jesus could have easily pulled from the, the ancient scriptures, the Old Testament, significant trees. All throughout the Old Testament, we read about the cedars of Lebanon, for instance. Famous trees, mighty trees. So if Jesus really was wanting to make a point about the significance of the tree itself, he chose a very interesting um, starting point. Why a mustard plant? Why not the cedars of Lebanon? For me, I grew up in the West, and we pastored in, uh, in California for a while. So we had the great privilege of going to see giant sequoias near Yosemite, and then the redwood forest outside of San Francisco. Been there. Anybody else been there? If you haven't made the journey to the West, it's a long ways from here, <laughs> but it's worth it to see these trees. Oh, my word. Massive trees that would fill this center section. Cars can be driven through a giant sequoia. I think about the idea of a mighty tree, and that's what comes to my mind. And I'm wondering, why in the world is Jesus telling a story about the significance of the kingdom of God, and he chooses a mustard plant that, yeah, okay, it grows to 9 to 15 feet. That's kind of cool, I guess. But not very cool when you think about the cedars of Lebanon or the giant sequoias, right? Man, if I was to tell a parable about the kingdom of God at work in the world, that's what I would choose. How about you? That really massive tree. There's this tree, and I don't even know what kind of tree it is. I wasn't planning on telling you this. I might have looked it up. <laughs> There's a tree we walk by in our neighborhood in Rochester, downtown, that I, Every time I walk by it, it reminds me of a dinosaur leg. <laughs> like what I think. I've never seen one, but <laughs> what I think of, like a, I mean, it's massive and it's gray. It's kind of an interesting texture. And I just, how long has that tree been planted in the city of Rochester, right? Massive tree. That's what I would use as an illustration. But Jesus, no, Jesus, <laughs> he uses the mustard plant. He's exaggerating. He's, he's trying to tell us something. We're, he's trying to get his audience to listen and go, wait, what? What did you just say? Why are you saying this? And if you paid attention, you notice that there's a tiny little clue that's given to us that the birds roost 
in this mustard plant. And it may be true, again, I didn't look this up, it may be true that tiny birds can, can sit on the branches of a mustard plant. That may be true. But that's not the point. Because if we start trying to think about parables in a literal fashion, then we're missing what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to paint a picture for us that changes the way we think. He's trying to get us to to pause and go, wait, that's not what I was expecting. What do you mean? So when we come to this idea about the birds roosting in the plant of uh, the branches of the, the mustard plant, what we should probably think about is an ancient prophecy from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, the king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. In this dream, there is a mighty tree. The tree represents the kingdom or the empire of Babylon. And in the tree, we're told in the vision that there are many birds sitting in the branches. At the end of this vision, we're told that this tree is going to be cut down. What we find out is that this vision is about the kingdom of Babylon and that it's going to fall. The birds in the tree, most biblical scholars will tell you, represent the nations that the kingdom of Babylon ruled over. So now take that ancient history, which this would have been history, this would have been text, this would have been images that Jesus' hearers would have been familiar with. Take that and now apply it to what's happening in this parable. Here are these birds sitting in the branches of this mustard plant. Jesus is connecting what's happened in the past to what's happening now. What is he saying? Oh, all around us have been these giant trees, these kingdoms that have sprouted up, and they have been mighty and powerful. And yes, they ruled over nations for a time. The birds sat in the branches, but friend, time after time, the axe has come. It's cut down the, the, the mighty empire. They've fallen, but not so with the kingdom of God. This thing that doesn't look like much has all the birds sitting in the branches. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If you think the kingdom of God is going to look like all the other kingdoms, you're going to miss it. Because it doesn't look like the mighty trees. But friends, the birds, the nations of the world are, bran- are sitting on the branches of that little old mustard plant. All tribes, all nations are one day going to come under the authority, the power of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. The yeast story is no different in reality. A tiny amount is used. If you're like me, I don't know anything about gardening and and being a farmer. I've told you that. I do know some things about baking, though. (laughs) Surprising twist, right? (laughs) This isn't a parable. This is true. Uh, I know that I can go to my my, uh, baking section of our kitchen, and we have little jars that have yeast granules in it. We also have the instant yeast packets that you can use. They're granules, right? Scoop out, put into your dough, and you can make beautiful cinnamon rolls. (laughs) That's mostly what I do. (laughs) The healthy food. That's not what's happening in the ancient world, though. So when you hear yeast, don't think those little granules. What you need to think is Amish bread. Has anybody got an Amish bread starter before? 
some of us, or sourdough. Have you ever done sourdough where you keep back a bit of the dough and you let it ferment and then you use that and add it into the next round of flour so that that becomes the yeast? That's what's happening in the ancient world. You hold back a little bit of the dough and then you let it ferment and then you add it into the next baking cycle. Common, typical, The exaggeration, the the interesting thing about this story or the humor behind it, again, is the amount of flour. Who in the world is going to take 60 pounds of flour and work the yeast into that to make bread? One biblical commentator said, this is enough bread for an entire village. But Jesus is making an outlandish statement for a reason. He's wanting us to see something that's hidden, something that's not obvious. And in fact, the text gives us a clue, except for the NIV doesn't help us here. The NIV says that the woman took the yeast and mixed is how it's translated. The Greek word there is most often translated concealed or hide. Now, of course, when you're describing the baking process, bread making process, nobody, I don't think in their right mind would say that I'm now going to hide the yeast in the, in the bread, in the flour, right? You don't see that. We, we take the yeast, we mix it into the flour, we mix this all together, and then you have the dough. So it makes total sense why the translators have chosen the word mix here. But I think it's, it's covering up what Jesus is really actually trying to say to us. The yeast is hidden Within all this flour, 60 pounds of flour, it's hidden, it's in there. And it begins to do its work. Much like the kingdom of God is hidden amongst us, it's concealed, it's not always visible. We don't always see the signs of it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is what Jesus says at the beginning of Matthew. And friends, you and I, if we're honest, want to say, hmm, I don't know that I always see that. Where? Where is it near? It doesn't look like it's near right now. Where is it? And Jesus' parable saying, oh, friend, it's there. It's mixed in. It's doing its work. Don't give up on it because next thing you know, you're going to have 60 pounds of dough. (laughs) You're going to be making a lot of bread. These two parables are about the surprise The hiddenness of the kingdom of God at work in this world, I think. And it may be easily missed, this hiddenness, this surprising component of the kingdom of God, if what you're looking for are giant trees that look like the other nations of the world. The usual signs of power. If that's what you think God is about, then friends, you're probably going to miss it because there it is in the mustard plant over here. Overlooked, hidden, not seen, not recognized because we're too busy looking at the giant sequoia. And it may be missed if you're only looking at the 60 pounds of flour. All those ordinary things in life that we see all around us, oh, they just are ordinary, aren't they? Nothing significant about them at all. Nothing extraordinary. It's just what life is made up, all of these things. Ah, but Jesus, I think, is suggesting to us in all of these little ordinary things of life, there can be the yeast of the kingdom of God at work. So that that ordinary will one day become extraordinary. But friends, we have to be patient, don't we? I think Jesus is saying to the crowds, be careful that you haven't missed what's right 
in front of you. Do you think Jesus wants to say that to us today? Or are we somehow immune from missing the kingdom of God at work right in front of us? Maybe you and I have expected God to work in a particular way in our life. And maybe he hasn't met that particular way that we thought he should be working. Maybe you have wondered whether this Christianity thing is worth it after all. What effect is it having in this world? Do we see signs that it is changing anything? And I think Jesus is suggesting to us that we might need to be open to the possibility that our expectations are not the right expectations. The ancient people didn't have the right expectations when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, showed up and was right in front of them. If they missed it, do you think you and I could also miss it? That our expectations, our desires, our wants might actually keep us from actually seeing this mustard seed growing into the plant. That we might miss that the, the yeast of God's kingdom is actually doing things in this world, even in our own lives. And I wonder if maybe sometimes we are just too impatient for God. Notice both of these parables, the seed that that grows. It takes a while for a seed to germinate. It takes a while for a, a plant to grow to 9 to 15 feet. Think about a giant sequoia and how long it would take from a seed, which, by the way, is not as small as a mustard seed, but small when you think about the size of a giant sequoia tree. That some sequoia trees are, they estimate, 2,500 years old. Whoa. That they were here before Jesus Christ came to earth, growing. It takes time is what I'm saying to you. Think about the way that, that yeast works. It doesn't happen instantaneously. We have to let it sit. We have to let it do its thing. It takes time. And I wonder if we miss out on the truth of the kingdom of God at work in this world right now because we're too impatient to give God time. It's at this point that the scene shifts in Matthew's gospel. We're told in verse 36 that he leaves the crowd. So he's been saying all these parables that we've been wrestling with the last couple weeks. They've been essentially directed to the crowd. But now he steps away from the crowd and he meets with his disciples. We get the explanation for last week's uh, parable on the weeds, which we covered last week. So we're not going to reread that today. He, he gives the explanation to them. And then he follows up that explanation with these words from verse 44. So if you have your Bible, look at Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I think the power of these two stories comes in knowing that they are told to the disciples. I think it changes how we hear these parables then when we think about the disciples and what the disciples are experiencing at this moment that Jesus is doing these teachings, these parables to up until this point has been with the crowds, but now he's withdrawn and he's teaching his disciples himself. It'd be one thing to follow Jesus if everyone loved him, right? 
if everybody followed him, if everybody rejoiced that Jesus was amongst the people and they all agreed with what he had to say, it would be one thing to follow. It would be, it would be a significant honor to be asked to be the 12 initial to follow Jesus, that version of Jesus. Think of all the prestige. Think of all the good things that would come your way. If, if everybody saw Jesus and said, oh, son of God, he's the son of God. Think about how prestigious it would be to be the initial 12, right? That's not what happens, though. Because Jesus is rebuked. Jesus is rejected by many. He's put off to the side by most. The 12 have been called to follow Jesus, and Jesus isn't widely regarded at this point of the narrative. What must it have been like to be a disciple in that circumstance? I don't think... If we listen to what Jesus is saying here, it's hard to understand what he's trying to say to his disciples. Yes, the crowds are turning against us. Yes, we're running into conflict. That's true, and you, I'm putting this in in my own words, but you have no idea what's about to come. All of that's true. But you're not missing out on anything. In fact, the, the parable, the first parable, seems to suggest to us that, that he's trying to encourage them with this thought that, yes, all of that's true, the suffering, the rejection, all of that's true, but friends, there's true joy to be found here. That's what happens, right? The, the, the man working the field finds this hidden treasure, not, by the way, a weird scenario in the ancient world because you didn't have banks, you didn't have safes, so if something bad was about to happen, there was a war that was about to happen, they happened a lot conflict, strife. What did you do with your savings? You buried it. Now, obviously, you would mark where you had it somewhere, and we actually have documents that mark, <laughs> tell us where buried treasure is, right? Awesome. <laughs> Found, so don't, don't bother looking for it. But uh, we knew, know that that happened, so he's offering us a real-life scenario, something that would have been typical. So this, this guy is out working the field, and he comes across this treasure. And you notice the response to this is great joy. It's just like the kingdom of God at work in the disciples, and I hope in us. Oh, we weren't necessarily looking for God, but God found us. We've, we suddenly realize there's this great treasure in front of us. Oh, there's, there's this thing that's being offered to me, this relationship that's being offered to me. This could change my life. An amazing gift has come. God loves you. God wants you to be his son and his daughter. What a gift. And great joy explodes because of this. It's worth it is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. The path is hard. It involves rejection, criticism. Sometimes involves the cross. But friends, once you've tasted of the kingdom of God, the joy that comes makes all of that go away, doesn't it? It's not the lasting feature. The pain hurts. The suffering hurts. Don't get me wrong. We're not dismissing that. But it's not what lingers. It's not what lasts. There's joy, true joy, which then leads into the second parable. And the perspectives change. This one was out just digging in the field and is surprised by what he finds. But this pearl hunter, is he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He's looking. He's searching. He has a plan. 
He wants to find a pearl of great wealth. Friend, once you become, once you're surprised by God's kingdom, once it, it somehow comes into your life and you're shocked by this thing that is now a part of you, guess what? You now have a responsibility to actually start doing some things. You don't just get to sit on the sidelines. You now, like the pearl hunter, have to engage. You need to work. Oh, there's a great pearl that's out there. There's a great truth awaiting us. You and I have to begin working, hunting, looking, go to church, read our Bibles. Seek God in the world. Where is he at work? I need to be eyes open, hunting and searching for the truth of God's kingdom. That's what the pearl hunter is describing to us. Jesus moves from this per, the, the pearl to the parable of the nets. And I'm not going to take time to read verses 47 uh, to 50 because in many ways the parable of the net is, is kind of a duplicate of the parable of weeds that we studied last, uh, two weeks ago. Last week? Two weeks ago. Last week. <laughs> oh, they're all mixing together. There are eight parables in here. So I'm not going to read it today. Go home and read it. It's very similar. I will just note this. Both the parable on the weeds and the, and the parable of the net end with this kind of apocalyptic imagery, the judgment, the final judgment that is going to happen. And I think we should at least acknowledge as followers of Jesus Christ that eternal lives are on the line here. Yours, mine, everyone. That this isn't just something we do for fun. If we have time... I might do a little bit of hunting for that pearl this week. Oh, if we really have the mindset that eternity is riding on this, then maybe we should engage a little bit differently, right? I think at the least we should consider the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net in this light. But Jesus says to the disciples in verse 51, have you, understand all the, have you understood all these things? Don't read the next line. What would be your answer to that question? <laughs> would you be so bold to say yes? I wouldn't. <laughs> the disciples somehow said yes. I don't know how they said yes. How do you know? I don't understand. And we find that later on in this gospel that in fact the disciples don't always understand. In this moment, maybe they're scared to say no. Maybe they do think they understand, and that's often the case for us. We think we understand God in this moment, and then we go through some things, and we're like, oh, wow, I learned some things. I didn't understand that back there, right? Maybe that's what's happening here. But they say yes, and then Jesus says this, verse 52, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom, new treasures as well as old. Some biblical scholars call that the eighth and final parable of this, passage, of this chapter. That this is meant to be a parable too. He's talking about scribes. Scribes were those that studied uh, the Hebrew scriptures. They were the one that taught people about the scriptures and he's saying this interesting thing to his disciples that we are to be like the scribes who look back at the things that have happened in the past, but who also have eyes open to what is happening now. And I think about you all, and I think about me. Generation upon generation has come before us. We prayed a Thanksgiving prayer over that, didn't we? But the world has changed in the last 50 years. 
The United States has changed. Some things for better, some things not for better. We find ourselves today in a different context than we did 10 years ago even. And what Jesus seems to be suggesting to his disciples and therefore to you is that, friends, in order for us to know how to orient ourselves, in order for us to know how to live within the world that we are planted in right now, and to do it faithfully, we have to look back. We have to know how God moved in the past. So we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, even though that's ancient history. But we need to look back so that we can discern who is God. What is God doing through this, through his people? We need to know the story of the Israelites. We need to see their mistakes. We need to learn from their strengths and their weaknesses. We need to see how God interacted with them. We need to look at the New Testament. We need to see what it means that Christ has come anew, that there's, there's something new that's happening in the Gospels. And what does that mean for us? And as we move into Acts, we have the beginning of the church and the movement of the Holy Spirit among the church. We need to know that. We need to keep looking back, keep wrestling with what's gone before us, but not so that we can just regurgitate the past, the old and the new, Jesus says. In order for you to know how to live in this world that we find ourselves in today, we look back. But we are also asking, God, what do I need to do here? What does Calvary community need to look like today? Not what it looked like 50 years ago. We thank God for what it did 50 years ago. But God has a new plan. We're in a new context There are new people around us. There are new issues. There are new circumstances. Friend, how do we know how to navigate all that? Well, we look back and we ask God to help us in the present. Did you notice he's saying this to his disciples? And he says, every teacher of the law, every scribe, not just me, but you, every one of us need to be looking back, asking about our current context. Every one of us needs to be equipped to navigate the reality that we're living in. The old meeting the new. We have an interesting way that we're going to end this sermon. I don't know what God has been saying to you in the midst of all of this. We've had to cover a lot of parables. Hopefully you stayed with me, but maybe you're stuck back on the mustard seed and didn't listen to anything else. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, That's okay. But we've covered a lot. Somewhere in there, I think there's a truth for each of us. I think God wants to speak to us this morning. But I want to end this morning in a real life kind of reality of how this old and new can come together in a meaningful way. So I'm going to ask the Lum family if they would come up here. Janice Alden and Samantha in particular. And Janice, could you grab the microphone back there? I should have grabbed it. Thank you. So many of you maybe already know this. Some of you maybe don't. But these three are a part of a group of of people from the upstate uh, district who are going to be going to Kenya uh, in a few months on a mission trip. And so Janice, I'm wondering, is your microphone on? Okay, good. (laughs) Because I didn't check ahead of time. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a taste of what you guys are doing and and what is happening on this mission trip. Sure. Um, 
so this is an opportunity of expectation for us, and I love the fact that God is so cool that the sermon was about the old and the new. Um, we are asking as a family for God to continue to make himself evident in our lives in a new way, in a fresh way. And um, going to African Nazarene University is part of that. We were originally, there's about 20 of us, and we were originally tasked, and still are tasked, with establishing a smart classroom at African Nazarene University. Um, that is the, the goal to go and to supply um, what is needed in order to do that. Um, but God moves in mysterious ways. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, currently serving as a chaplain in a hospital. I'm also a registered nurse. Samantha is a scout, really good with American Sign Language, and she loves to sing. Alden is an electrical engineer and a hidden car mechanic. <laughs> and I believe that God is going to be using us three and the other 15 or so individuals in all of those unique ways to show up in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's our expectation. That is, that is what we're going to go to do. We've been asked to do this smart classroom, but to be prepared for anything. That may be a, a VBS in the area. That may be me teaching some people. That may be me working in a clinic as a nurse. We don't know. We don't know. It might be painting. A whole lot of painting is something that we've been told might be part of it. Um, so we're going with expectation. Um, and honestly, Alden and I were talking that this is the first time in a long time that we are stepping out on faith. Mm that we have not had the plan, have, we've not had the picture, we've not had the resources and um, it all mapped out. We don't know how this is gonna work. I hate flying. I hate it. I'm not in the best of health. I need a CPAP to sleep at night and there's three nights that I won't have electricity. Um, I just, there's the finances. We need at least $6,500 still. I have no idea where God's gonna move in that way. Um, there's just things that we don't know. And I am so looking forward to after we arrive back in October, it's from about October 1st through the 15th or 16th, to be able to show up and share with you, our church family, how you sent three people in support and love and finances and prayer to Africa and how God made himself known through it. Awesome. So I am going to... We're excited for you, I think, yeah. Uh, we're gonna take a love offering for them as part of the reason I've asked them to come forward and I'm gonna say a prayer over you guys and we'll pray over you in October. We'll ask people to come and lay hands on you before, but I'll just do a general prayer. Um, but there are two ways that you can give to this. Uh, there's the old fashioned way, we're gonna pass the plates. Um, if you do put it in the box in the back, you'll need to make sure that it's marked love offering for us. You can also give on the app. Uh, there's a drop-down menu and you can do love offering and that will go to the, all, all, um, the Lum family. And just so you know, I'm gonna keep that, we're gonna keep that open on the app or so our online giving will keep that open for a few weeks so that if today's not the day that you can contribute to it, you'll have opportunity to do that in the next couple weeks. But we do really hope that God will take this, this reality that we're faced with. Africa is an amazing, amazing continent. Amazing. The church is exploding. The church of the Nazarene is exploding in Africa, but there are some significant challenges. Education being at the top of the bar. How do you educate in this new world we're in? And so part of the, the project is to make a, a modern classroom, right? A 21st century classroom that's capable of meeting the needs of our world. That's the old, taking the old. It's still a Christian university. It's a Nazarene university, but we're gonna blend it with the new, the modern, 
technology. So God, we do ask that you first and foremost would just be with the Lum family and the rest of the district team as they're still in this preparation phase, preparing, questioning, wondering how is this all going to work? You say that if we have just a tiny amount of faith that we can move mountains, that amazing things can happen, that you can do tiny, take tiny seeds and your kingdom can break forth. You can plant a little bit of yeast and suddenly there's your kingdom at work, God. So we pray that you would do that. As we take this offering, I pray that you would multiply it. This is an opportunity for us to bless a family within our congregation that's doing something that maybe we won't be able to do in our lifetime. We can bless them as they do this, as they step out in faith. And then that pulls us into their, their going. We're a part of that story. So, God, I pray that you would find us generous with the Lum family. Would you multiply? Would you make, make a way possible for all three of them to go? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.